I really came up with this series in my mind last February. I don't remember exactly where we were flying from. It was either Houston Bush or DFW, but we had a late night flight back to Wichita. And after Mary Alice and I got on the plane, the pilot started taxing the plane around the airport. And he kept taxing, kept taxing, kept taxing. Finally, I looked at Mary Alice and I said, are we driving back to Wichita? Because that's what it felt like. But the moment those words were out of my mouth, I began to think about something. I began to think about years of interacting with people and then thinking about my own story as well. And I thought, in some ways, the idea of an airplane that doesn't take off, that just taxis, is almost a metaphor to explain a lot of our lives. We have a sense that like an airplane, we were designed and destined for something better and higher. And it's not that we're not active and moving. It's just that we seem to be taxing instead of flying. And I can feel that in my own life. Sometimes I feel that way. And, and so I want to explore, what would, it, what, would it, what would it mean to take off? What would it mean to really live out the life we were destined to live or designed to live? What if we could get airborne with life? And so with that thought in mind, the series began. Here's the thing. For all of us who feel like we're just taxing around and we're not getting airborne, let's give ourselves at least one break. It's not for lack of trying, is it? I mean, when I look back on my life, as the years have passed and new year after new year has come by, it isn't that I haven't tried to change. It's not that I haven't exerted a lot of energy in it. So it isn't for lack of trying. You know, as I got ready for the series, I needed to understand and to accept the reality that I don't know anything about flying. I don't know anything about being a pilot. When you're ADD, you probably shouldn't be in the cockpit of a plane because pilots need to really focus on what they're doing. But we're the air capital of the world. We make half the world's airplanes. A whole lot of you have a background in aircraft engineering. And then on top of that, many of you are pilots. One of my closest friends here at New Spring is Joe Beck. Joe's a retina surgeon. But Joe's also an accomplished pilot, and he's a trainer of pilots. He trains pilots. And so Joe's been kind of coaching me up as I got ready for this series. Yesterday morning, we had breakfast, and we were discussing that there are four forces necessary for a plane to fly. There is weight, and there is lift, and there's thrust, and there's drag. Well, it's too close to Christmas for me to talk about weight. I don't want to talk about weight at all. And I don't want to talk about drag. But let's talk about those other two forces for just a moment. Let's talk about thrust and lift. See, I think what happens with a whole lot of us, there's a lot of thrust in our lives. There's a lot of energy. We exert a lot of force. See, an airplane can bring its own thrust. It just can't bring its own lift. It can be designed for lift, and it is. But an aircraft requires the forces that God put in our world in order to have lift. And by the way, if all we've picked up so far is that we're not going to experience lift without God's energy in our lives, you just got your first flight lesson today. Because the fact of the matter is, you can have thrust, you can have energy, you can put a lot of action into your life, but if we don't have the lift that God supplies, we'll never experience life the way God wants me to. So is there a life like that? I mean, I'm not talking about life without turbulence. All of us are going to experience turbulence. Yesterday, Joe was telling me about CAT, clear air turbulence. He said you can be flying alone and flying along, and radar, radar measures moisture, but you can hit a pocket of turbulence, and that can happen for all of us. So I'm not talking about life without turbulence, life without issues. I'm just saying, is there a life in which we have this sense that God has allowed us to live out what we were destined to be and do? Well, the Bible talks about this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31. And it says that the people that trust in God 
Look at this. They get fresh strength. Well, what would that mean in real terms? It means to get strength that we don't bring. It means to get thrust that we don't have on board. Those who trust in God will get fresh strength. They'll get lift. And look at this. They spread their wings and they soar like eagles. Guys, I'm going to be very honest with you. I always try to be academically honest with you here at New Spring. I don't know that I could honestly stand before you today and say that that, categorizes, or that, that characterizes my life. I want it to. And I, and I have a lot of good things that happen in my life. But I'm not really sure I could, I could say today that my life is characterized by spreading my wings and soaring like an eagle. But I want to get there. I want to be there. And that's what this whole series is about. You know, whenever I get ready for a series at New Spring, I usually know how long it's going to be. It's going to be four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Five weeks is kind of the sweet spot for me for a series. But I'm going to, do, I'm going to tell you the honest truth today. I'm really not sure how long the series is going to be. Because I want to make sure that we really get everything we need to get. Because this life that's going to teach us how to be airborne doesn't come from Mark, doesn't come from New Spring Church, it doesn't come from any, any religious leader. It comes directly from Jesus himself. 2,000 years ago, the God-man, the god in skin man walked up a mountain and he gave a talk about how to live the airborne life. And, and here's the thing that I love about this. It's in the book of Matthew, chapters, four, five, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Some people call it the greatest sermon ever preached. Some people call it the kingdom manifesto. If you grew up in church like I did, it's very possible that you learned to call it the Sermon on the Mount. But even though those, those, that sermon is divided by chapters, you've got to realize that men put those chapter breaks in there in the 12th century. When Jesus brought this message, it was one whole message. And so in this message, he's going to lay down for us the tracks of how to live out a life that gets you airborne, the life that you were destined to lead. Now, as I shared with you during the introduction a few moments ago, we don't have our set yet. Um, next week when you come in, there will be a 737 that pretty well covers this entire stage. And I can't wait for you to see it. It is the greatest set we've ever had. But you know, it's important for a pilot to spend time in ground school. When I was talking to my pilot friend yesterday, he said, you know, ground school is important because a person learns to fly without the distractions of flying. And so today, we need to, we need to do that. Now here's what you should know. Before Jesus gets into a lot of key topics that we're going to be interested in, like sex and money and anger management and relationships and prayer and what happens when you die, and he will get into all those things. Jesus is going to do something that a good flight instructor or ground instructor would do. He's going to teach us to look at our gauges. You know, <laughs> for all of you who have flown or your pilots, I'm going to sound like a toddler school student compared to what you know. But from what I picked up, um, in the average cockpit, there's, there are gauges. And, and, in, and especially small planes, there's like a six-pack of gauges. And there's a gauge that will tell you how high you are, how high you are, how fast you're going. Or there's a gauge that will tell you which direction you're going. But there's one gauge that's usually in the top line of gauges in a six-pack of gauges that's the most important gauge for a pilot. You know what it's called? It's called the attitude indicator. 
And what I was, my, my pilot friend told me, he said, you know, he said there's, a, there's sort of a cadence to looking at gauges that pilots go through. He said, your home base is your attitude indicator. Now, you can switch to another gauge, but you always come back to the attitude indicator. You can see how high you're flying, but you come back to the attitude indicator. You can see how fast you're flying, but you come back to the attitude indicator. You can see which direction you're going, but you come back to the attitude indicator. And he told me this. He said, you know what? A pilot can fixate on a gauge and get in trouble. If a pilot just fixates on how fast he's going or how high she's flying or the direction that this person is going, then the pilot can get in trouble. Man, the moment he told me that, I thought that's exactly what life is like. I've had people tell me, hey, Mark, I'm going fast. I'm just making things happen. But the problem is they've gotten their mind and their eyes off the attitude indicator. Or I'm, I'm, I'm high, man. I'm doing so many great things. But their attitude is in trouble. Or people will tell me, you know, I've, I've sorted, I've figured out my direction in life. I'm going to be a, a doctor. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm just focused on my direction. But the problem is they don't switch back to their attitude indicator and they get into trouble. Just so that we'll know, and this is not a good definition, but it's the best one I can come up with. What attitude is to a pilot is the orientation of the plane to the horizon. See, heavy stuff is not meant to stay in the air. And the thing about it is, if the attitude of a plane gets wrong, the wings can go into a stall or worse, and something heavy can go right into the ground because the attitude is wrong. It won't fly anymore. In 2008, Aeroflot A21 went down. Perfectly good 737. Pilot sticker right into the ground. And they were flying without autopilot and without auto throttle. They were flying in clouds and they were flying at night. And went into a steep bank, flipped the plane over 180 degrees, took a good, perfectly good 737 right into the ground. And the main reason was that the pilots, the, the Russian pilots, weren't familiar with Western attitude indicators. Now, the reason why I've set all that up to this is that before Jesus gets us into anything else, he's going to take us to the most important gauge on our dial. Jesus is going to talk about attitudes. Now, here's something that's salient for our discussion before we get into this today. You need to realize that the crowd that Jesus was talking to, they were very familiar with a rules-based system. They had grown up with God's rules, which are always good, but the problem with their religion is the problem with most religions are. It not only contains God, contained God's rules, but it contained a lot of rules that man had heaped on top of God's rules. So these are people that, they're, they're, they're sort of experience with God had gone something like this. God has this long checklist of rules for me to just check the boxes. And so when Jesus goes to talk to these people, he blows their mind by saying, I don't want to talk about checking boxes. I want to talk about attitude. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that checking the religious boxes isn't all that hard. Dealing with Mark's attitudes, that's what's a challenge. But just so that you and I will understand how God feels about this, let me ask you a question. Are you in love? Maybe I should just ask you if you're in a relationship. Let me ask you this. What do you want from the person who loves you? Would you like for the person who is in the relationship with you, would you like for the relationship to be on this basis? You present him, you present her with a list of 50 things and say something like this. Here are 50 things and 50 boxes. If you check all these boxes, I will love you. Who wants to be in that kind of relationship? On the other hand, how would you feel about having somebody in a relationship with you that loves you? And maybe from time to time they'd miss a box, but not because they didn't love you. they just not perfect. I don't know about you, but I want the second person 
right? I don't want somebody to feel like if she doesn't check every box, she can't be in a relationship with me. I want somebody who loves me. And that's exactly what God wants. I mean, if you have the idea that God is looking for somebody that checks every religious box perfectly, and then God will love you, and many of us have grown up with religion like that, God is saying, it's not what I'm interested in. I want you to get your mind, Jesus says, on your attitude, on your attitude indicator. Well, I'm going to do something I haven't done in at least 12 years. I'm going to preach half a sermon because what Jesus has given me to talk about here, I can't get it all in in one talk. So this is attitude indicator part one. If you come back next week, it'll be attitude indicator part two. But I promise you, you'll learn enough today that if you put it into practice, I think you'll start feeling some altitude. You'll start feeling some lift. <laughs> one more thing about the attitude indicator. It's my favorite gauge on the aircraft because not only is it the home base for the pilot, it's got color in it. I'm ADD. I love anything that's color. An attitude indicator, the bottom half is brown and the top half is blue. You know why? Because the brown part represents the ground and the blue part represents the sky. It's really important for pilots to keep that straight. <laughs> it's important for a Christian too. All right, with that out of the way, Oh, you know, and here's the thing. One more thing. I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff at you before I get into this. You know, I think Jesus understands something here. Before we start looking at sex and money and relationships and anger and moods and all these things, it's important for us to think about life in terms of merely checking our attitudes. Because it gets real complicated, doesn't it, when we start doing all the other things. The thing about knowing what kind of attitude I have, it simplifies life. And that's why when pilots are being trained to fly, they'll put a pilot under the hood. And how a pilot works at this point, he can't see out the windshield. She can't look out to see anything. All you can see is the gauges. Because see, here's the problem with flying. The problem with flying is sometimes what you see out the windshield leads you to believe things that aren't true. And even sometimes just the fluids in your inner ear can make you believe things are true that aren't true. And so the pilot is trained to look only at the gauges. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us here as he tells us, before you get into looking at any issue in your life, examine your attitude indicator. Okay? With that in mind, let me show you four, and then we'll go home or go somewhere. Here's Jesus, Matthew 5, 3, number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, just like a pilot under the hood, Jesus is going to tell us what makes us happy. And if we go by what we feel, a lot of times we're going to look at what Jesus says makes us happy, and we're going to say, I don't think that make me happy. But he's putting us under the hood. Now, this is really important. Every time Jesus tells us about an attitude to hold, he's going to give us a promise that goes with it. When we explore that promise that goes with it, a lot of times it will tell us what the typical problem we have with having that attitude. Because basically what God is going to say is, look, if you'll have this attitude, I'll give this to you. But a lot of times, in order to get what we think we want, we don't have the right attitude and blow everything up. So Jesus is just going to say to us, have this attitude, I will give you what you want. Okay, here we go. Look at it one more time. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to do something I'm not going to do with the rest of these. I want to take a great tool. If you want to study the Bible, one of the greatest tools you'll ever have is an amplified version. You can get the app. Or if you're like me, you're old school, you can actually buy a volume of this. The amplified version of the Bible is a translation that includes phrases that expand to give us the actual original meaning. Okay, let me read out the amplified. Amplified. 
blessed, which means happy, to be envied, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of outward circumstances. So I'd love that. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be happy and just experience God's favor and do that no matter what the circumstances are, even if you've got clear air turbulence, God is saying this will make you happy. Be poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? They are the humble who rate themselves insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us to really get what Jesus is talking about, we, we kind of need to understand that things were a little different in Jesus' times than they are today. A little different. In Jesus' times, if you were rich, you acted rich. You acted important. You slung your weight around. If there was a banquet, you went to the best seats. If you were poor, you had to act poor. I mean, it was just the way the culture functioned. You, had to, you basically had to just sit on the floor if you were poor. If you were rich, you acted rich. If you were poor, you acted poor. I know it's still a little bit like that today. We're a lot more egalitarian than Jesus' time was. So what he's talking about, he's not talking about being poor. He's talking about acting as though you're not self-important. Self-worth is good. A sense of conflated self-importance is not. And so the reason why I throw that out, I've known people that were very wealthy that were poor in spirit. I played golf at Bay Hill with a Christian layman who has nearly a billion dollars. He started an insurance company, developed it. He was one of the gentlest, most humble, self-effacing human beings I ever met in my life. So it's possible to have a billion dollars and still be poor in spirit. On the other hand, it's possible to be poor and to have attitude. So Jesus is saying, look, happy are the people that have a sense of dependency upon God, a sense of utter helplessness without him. Now, when you look at Jesus' promise, notice that he said theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word theirs, what does that connote? What does it communicate? Ownership. So basically what Jesus is saying is the reason why you might not be inclined to be poor in spirit is you might have bought into what the world says. See, over and over in this talk, Jesus is going to say, as he does in Matthew 5.21, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Well, the world that we live in says, look, if you want to be important, you got to do great things, you got to make lots of money, and you got to have lots of nice stuff. And if you drive this particular car, if you wear these designer clothes and live in this neighborhood, then people will look at you and say, look at what she's accomplished and what she has. She must be a poor person of importance or worth. And Jesus is saying, happy are the people. They don't live on that merry-go-round. Happy are the people that don't have to impress you. Someone has said about Americans, Americans are people who buy things they don't want with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Happy are the people that even though they may have a great amount of wealth, they don't act the part. They communicate a sense of, of dependence upon God. They communicate a sense of, of, I'm not the important person here. That's thinking about something that happened to me years ago. In my middle to late 30s, I wound up on the board of directors for a, a large Christian organization. You know, like 20 of us board members. And on this board was a living legend. He didn't attend that many meetings, but I knew he was on the board. 
and always worried about what would ever happen if I saw him because, I mean, the guy, I mean, for most of my childhood, he pastored, I think, the second largest church in America. He started a Christian university, started all kinds of relief organizations, mission organizations. He's a living legend. I mean, he's this tall, erudite guy, had this deep voice. I mean, like someone said, like, God's only deeper. I mean, he just, he is powerful presence. And so I always worried about what would happen if I ever, like, had to talk to him. But I remember one, one day, we'd had board meetings all day. We went to dinner that night. And we had to come back for another board meeting that evening. And I walked into the room, and he was the only person in the room. And then when I looked at the nameplates, you know, mine was next to his. And I realized I was going to have to go over to him. And I went over there thinking, oh, Lord, I've got to introduce myself. God, just please help me to put words together that make sense. I mean, this is a great guy. I mean, he's gone with the Lord now, but if I had him and old Moses on stage, I don't know who to introduce first. And I still remember walking over to him, and as I got close to him, he stood to his feet and put his hand out, and he said, oh, Mark, I've been wanting to meet you. This will tell you how long ago this was. He said, I listen to your sermon tapes all the time. And I thought, oh, Lord, I hope that isn't true. He's a legend. He's a living legend. I'm nobody. And yet he treated me like I was important. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, happy are the people who don't have this conflict and sense of self-importance. Happy are the people who are not self-sufficient. Or he could say the reverse of that. Unhappy are the people who are self-sufficient. There are thousands of people here in all our services at New Spring this week. But I've always believed there's an imaginary era over every one of ours, over every one of our heads. It's either pointing up or down. Here's the thing. If you're humble, your era is pointing up. And I tell you that for a reason. Because you could be humble because life has humbled you. You may have gone through a really hard time. I mean, you just may have barely gotten here today, and you're holding on with your fingernails for dear life, and you're saying, God, if you don't help me, I'm not going to make it. And you're just hoping I say something in this message today that will be transformative. Now, here's the thing. You may be way down here, but your arrow is pointing up. You're on your way up because the Bible says God helps the humble. On the other hand, you could be here and be self-sufficient. You say, I don't even know why I'm here today. My wife made me come. Let's just get this over with. I don't need this. My life is going great. I am just fine. Your arrow is pointing down. You say, I don't feel that. I know. I know. I know. But you're headed down. Because the Bible says God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that pride goes before a fall. So the idea, you say, well, well, Mark, I need to be self-sufficient so I can be happy. Self-sufficiency is a myth. The thing about being self-sufficient or even attempting to be self-sufficient, the attempt will ruin your life and ruin your relationships. And beyond that, you know, it will take you down roads that lead nowhere. And if your goal in life is being self-sufficient, life is going to mock you when you get a few years on you just to show you that you're not self-sufficient. So Jesus is saying, look, unhappy are the self-sufficient. Happy are the people who realize their sense of dependency upon him. Let's go into the second one real fast. Jesus said, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Well, I'm very driven not only to understand this personally, but to help you understand this, because it almost looks like Jesus is saying, happy are the people that cry. Well, everybody cries. But here's, here's the key to it all. All of these attitudes that Jesus is going to talk about, they're elective. They're choices that we make. So put together people who cry and people who make a choice. Here, here's the best way I can explain this in 2015, 2016, sorry, language. When you're my age, the years just go so fast, it's hard to keep track of. Jesus is saying, happy are the vulnerable. You know what it means to be vulnerable? It means you risk being hurt in order to love. Of all the sayings that I've said through the years, probably the one I've said the most is, I don't know how to risk without loving. I don't know how to love without risking, I mean. I mean, if I'm in a, if I'm in a friendship or a relationship and I don't love the person, what do I lose if it blows up? But if I love you, and something happens, it breaks my heart. I don't know how to love without risking. And so what Jesus is talking about is happy are the people who put their heart at risk in order to love. Now, real, real quickly, I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand. He's not saying that if you're being abused, you need to let yourself be abused. That's for a different talk. He's just talking about life. See, here's the thing. The very best people in the world are still flawed. They're still imperfect. And they will hurt you. Here's the thing. If you could be with me every day, if we work together, and if you were with me every day, I would eventually hurt you. I wouldn't want to, but I'd just say something that could be taken the wrong way, or I'd fail to do what I should do or something, and I would let you down. I wouldn't want to, but I'm just human. It's just how we are, right? So, I mean, here's the thing. It doesn't, if you're in friendships, if you're in relationships, if you're married, you can be married to the best person in the world, and that person will still hurt you. You can be in the best circumstance of life, but it's still going to be imperfect. And so Jesus is just calling us to embrace that. And he's saying, look, I realize you're going to be hurt sometimes, but happy are the people who are willing to put themselves out there, who are willing to love at the risk of being hurt. You want to get married? You're going to be hurt. You want to have kids? Let's not even talk about that. <laughs> you want to have friends? That's just the nature of the world. But here's the thing. If happy are the people who are willing to put their heart at risk in order to love, then Jesus, it has to work the other way. Unhappy are the people who put a crust around their hearts. In all the years of pastoring, and I don't counsel anymore, but back when I used to counsel, I, I would sit across sometimes from a woman or a man who had been hurt very deeply and oftentimes frequently, and I've actually had a few people say this to me. They would actually say, Mark, nobody's ever going to hurt me again. I want to tell you what I've experienced. Everybody who's told me that, I've watched as a darkness settled in over their lives, and I've watched them change. Some of the sweetest, kindest, nicest people I ever met became toxic people because they decided nobody is ever going to hurt me again. And instead of living without hurt, they lived in consistent hurt. But I know, I know what somebody's thinking here today. They're saying, well, Mark, listen, you just don't understand the reason why I won't put my heart out there anymore is that the people who've hurt me they never come around and make it right. Well, you know what? I hate to say this. They probably won't. Because the people who hurt you over and over, a lot of times, are not the people who will come back and tell you they've hurt you. I almost hate to go here because this illustration I'm about to give you, 
I'm going to tell you I did something, but I failed at it so many times. But I'm going to do it anyway. My life as a pastor is um, I don't have control of my schedule a lot of times. Just things happen I don't, I don't see coming. And so when my boys were little and they were growing up, we would have trips planned or we'd have activities that we planned to do, but then something would happen at the church and someone would get ill or someone would pass or there would be an emergency and I would have to tell my boys, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to take this trip. But I would always tell them this, I'll make it up to you. And like I said, I almost hate to go here because I failed at that so many times. What I was trying to tell them was, look, you're not going to have this, but I'm going to give you something better. The reason I use this illustration is your heavenly father is not like your pastor. He never fails. He never comes up short. He is just telling you, if people hurt you, he will make it up to you. He is saying to you, happy are those who are willing to be vulnerable because he will comfort you. I love this verse. I've spent my life loving this verse. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he delivers those who are discouraged. Is your heart broken today? Well, the Lord is very close to you. And that's what he's saying. I, I know you put yourself out there. I know you risked. I know you were willing to love. And the person that you loved broke your heart. But the Lord is saying, I'll make it up to you. Happy are the people who are willing to risk being hurt in order to love. Number three, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, let's run a subtitle. A subtitle. We've talked about happy are the people who feel their sense of importance and need for God. And then we just talked about happy are the people who are willing to put themselves out there in order to love. Now this is going to have to do with the way we treat people. And Jesus is happy or the meek. Now, here's a great way of illustrating what Jesus means by meek. He's talking about being the person who will say, you go first, I'll step back. It's okay if you get what I wanted. I'm going to step back, and if you get what I wanted, I'm going to be rejoicing that you got it. If you get a better house than I get, I'm going to praise God for it. You get a better car than I get, I'm going to be thankful for you. If I see you succeed and I don't succeed where I want to succeed but you do, I'm okay with that. And it's like going through life with everybody. You say, well, Mark, do I need to just be meek with the people that I like or can I be mean to the people that I don't like? Well, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke adds that Jesus said, because your father is good to the people who love him and he's good to the people who don't. God is just saying, go through life, saying, hey, you go first. Now, boy, you talk about a place where you're going to have to put on the hood and just look at the instruments. Because in 2016 America, we are taught that if you want to be happy, you've got to demand your space. You've got to demand your rights. That's part of just being a 2016 man, a 2016 woman. You just don't let anybody get ahead of you. You get yours. Is that really the way to be happy? Let me ask you a question. If you've lived very long, if you're 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, let me ask you a question. Who are the people you remember? Were they the people? I mean, the people that have had a great impact on you. Were they the shoving, shoveling, sho you know, shoving demanding, pushy people? Were they the ones that impacted you? I don't know why I thought about this story from elementary school. When I was in Texas growing up, all, the first six grades were all together in elementary school. And I went to a large elementary school. At one point, close to 1,000 kids. 
biggest kids on campus were patrol boys. I mean, patrol boys, they had like this white belt around the waist and a shoulder belt and a badge. I mean, it was like, they were just like real policemen when I was a first grader looking up, you know, to patrol boys. There were only six. Four of them were just patrol boys. They had silver badge, and there was a lieutenant that had like a blue inset on, a red inset on the badge, and then the captain had a blue inset on the badge. So when I get to the sixth grade, the supervisor of the patrol boys asked me, would you like to be a patrol boy? And I went home and asked my dad. My dad said, well, our schedule, he was a pastor. He said, our schedule doesn't always work that way. And he said, I, I don't think you should be one. So I had to turn it down. But later on, and this is what kind of got to me, dad said, well, you know what? If I had death to do over again, I would have said yes. The only problem was it's too late for me to be a patrol boy. But there's a kid in my class named David Henderson. David and I used to tell everybody we were cousins because his uncle married my aunt. And we were best buddies. Dave was a great athlete, just super kid. If I remember right, you couldn't make a C if you were a patrol boy. And it was the first six weeks, and we all got our report cards, and school was over, and we were looking over our report cards. And I still remember like it was yesterday. David came over, and he got me by the arm, and he said, come with me. He started dragging me out of the classroom. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to go see the supervisor, Miss Odell, patrol boys. And he took me in there to see her, and he said, I made a C on my report card. I can't be a patrol boy anymore. He said, I want Mark to take my place. And she said, great, I want him all along. <laughs> and then he said something that I remember to this day. He said, and I want him to have my badge. I just leapfrogged all the other patrol boys. I mean, somewhere in my mother's stuff is a little miniature badge that I got as an award for being captain of the patrol boys. I think about David sometimes. I haven't seen him in... Gosh, almost 50 years. I remember that. I can't have this, but I want Mark to have it. That is what it means to be meek. It means if I don't get it, I want you to have it. It's okay if you get more than I get. It's okay if you go further, faster, higher than I go. And you know the weird thing about that is we're told that that kind of living, you just get stepped all over and it's not worth living. And yet Jesus said, look, put on the hood because this is how to be happy. Happy are the people who are meek. Why? Because they're going to inherit the earth. I mean, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. See, I mean, here's the thing. If you get more of this world than I get, God bless you. Knock yourself out. I'm, I stand in here at big. I'm going to inherit the earth. What this is telling you and me is we can afford to be generous because we are the daughters and sons of Almighty God and we stand to inherit everything. You can afford. You can afford to let others go first. This and I'm through. The fourth beatitude is in Matthew chapter 5 or 6 where Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they will be satisfied. Translation, Jesus is saying, happy are the people who want God's will on the earth more than anything. Number one, what do you want? What's your list of what you want? If you're a God follower, chances are you do want God's will on earth. But it, where is it? Is it number two? Is it number eight? Is it number 46? Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be happy, crave God's will on the earth. You know, the Lord's Prayer is actually in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll spend at least one week, if not two weeks, unpacking the Lord's Prayer. How, how did he teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you realize that what Jesus is training us to ask for is miracles? Because a miracle 
<laughs> All a miracle is is the norm of heaven meeting the norm of earth. It's what's normal in heaven meeting what's normal on earth. It's just business as usual in heaven meeting business as usual on earth. That's all a miracle is. And so we were trying to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if happy are the people who want what God wants on earth more than anything else, then unhappy are the people who want stuff in this world more than anything. Hmm. If there ever was a beatitude for Americans, this is it. Do you know in 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says this, do not love the world. Now, right out of the box, we can have a problem because we could say, well, the most famous verse in the Bible says, God so loved the world, now I'm told not to love the world. Two different Greek words for world. One world means inhabited earth. What we're reading about now is the system, just the way things work in this world. And God is saying, don't love this world. And look at this. This is what's in the world. Verse 16, for the world offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. They're from this world. And this world is fading away. The world as God sees it, the system that we're not supposed to love, is three attitudes. I want what I see. I want what makes me feel good. Look at me. I mean, think about this. How much of our life is wrapped up in, I want what I see, I want what makes me feel good, look at me. And yet Jesus said, hey, don't, don't get wrapped up in that stuff. Why? Because the world is passing away. You, you know, here's the deal. We get this new car. I mean, uh, God bless you. I hope you get a really, 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 really fine automobile. Bad news. Give it 15 years, it's in the junkyard, somebody's using it for parts. Right? You got, oh, I've got designer clothes on. It's going to be in your garage sale someday. Here's the big one. You say, oh, I'm buff and ripped. Wait till you see what time and gravity do with that. <laughs> God is saying, look, happy are the people. Well, take, let me take a time out for a moment. You remember when Noah was on the ark and the floodwaters began to recede? And Noah can't see what's going on outside because God didn't let him have windows except in the top of the ark, which is kind of freaky when you think about it. But there was a point where Noah didn't know where he was, and he let a couple of birds out. You remember what he let out? He let out a vulture, and he let out a dove. And the point came where the waters were low enough that the vulture didn't come back anymore. And I know it's about lunchtime, so I'll be real careful here. Basically, there was carrion out there. A lot of dead bodies floating around. Vulture found what it wanted. But the dove came back. She didn't see anything she wanted. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people that in this world, they utilize their time. They use possessions, but they love people instead of loving possessions and using people. These are people that feel their need of importance, uh, of their need of God in their lives, not self-importance. These are people who are willing to risk being hurt in order to love. These are people who are, they're even willing to let others go first because they just don't see what they want in this world. What they crave more than anything else is God's will being done. And according to that clock, I am two minutes and 44 seconds into overtime. And so we're just going to pull over to the side of the road since this is ground school. 
And then I'll come back and preach the second half of this message next week. But I'll tell you one thing. If you employ these four attitudes, I think you'll start feeling some lift. Thanks for being here. God bless.